Welcome to another episode of Conduct Detrimental, three-headed monster this week, Dan Lust, Stephanie Weisenberger, and Professor Tony Ilyacostas. Guys, it's been a minute. It has been a minute. It's good to get the gang back together again. I was just about to say that too. The gang is back and we are ready to go. You guys are going to laugh. You know, we've, I think we've, the three of us have done an episode maybe once or twice together. You guys know I joined a new firm maybe, maybe like three months ago at this point. So when I joined, they did like an internal announcement and they're like, Dan Lust joins us. He was at X firm. He, you know, lives in Westchester. He's got two little girls and he hosts a podcast. And I said the name of the podcast, Conic Detrimental. And I'm like, great. My coworkers are going to be listening to my podcast, which <laughs> I don't know. I guess, you know, a lot of people I don't know listen to the podcast, which is great. But someone knocked on my door and they're like, by the way, I listened to an episode. I'm like, oh, which episode? And they're like, you guys were talking about like this whole fish cheating saga <laughs> and a WWE wrestler getting a tattoo. And I'm like, the Stephanie and Tony episode. I'm like, and then nice. I listened to another episode and I sense that your episodes are not always that fun. And I'm like, that is correct. <laughs> so, so, that, so that's why you had to bring Tony and I back. That's why. It's, it's our quarterly episode. Bring you guys back on. This is, you know, sports law is not always fun. Sometimes the topics are very serious and we have to talk about them very seriously. But other times we get a little bit of a lull in the calendar and we can create an episode about some, uh, I think some fun topics. Okay. So before we get into that, Stephanie, right? You are, where are you recording this from? Your new fancy MLB network office? Yes, I am. Oh, I am. Is it okay if we talk about a Major League Baseball related topic, even though you are an employee of MLB network? Yes, as long as there is nothing bad said, because there should be <laughs> nothing bad said about that MLB because it is so fantastic. fantastic. And now that Aaron Judge is captain, I mean, all is right in the world. Of course, you had to stick it in. Of course, you had um, to. I had to. That's fair. <laughs> MLB. We are not sponsored by MLB, but like, you know what? We'll pretend uh, that we are because. We now have uh, one of our people that is there. And Tony, you're recording from uh, Ilya Costas HQ. That's it. Exactly. Just the IP professor headquarters. I love it. Okay. So we're going to cover five topics on the docket today. So first, the story uh, we were planning to cover, then it kind of blew up on, on our radars. That is the Carlos Correa signing with the Giants, and then just kidding, signing with the Mets <laughs> for over $300 million. It's They talk about kind of medical disclosures. We'll get into that. Uh, I am a a lifelong Giants fan, and uh, and a, Tony, you are a Mets fan. Stephanie, you're just like a generic Rob Lowe wearing like a MLB Network <laughs> logo hat fan. Yankees. <laughs> Yankees, okay. Now, you like all teams when you work for MLB. We're going to talk about an interesting saga over in the WWE with now former wrestler Mandy Rose, a saga with a kind of OnlyFans-esque site called Fantime, very interesting independent contractor analysis. An interesting case, uh, maybe a brewing case involving MSG, Facial recognition and not allowing certain fans into an arena. I think that is an interesting one. The Phoenix Suns kind of ending a saga. We talked about Robert Sarver having to potentially sell the team. The team is now tentatively sold. And then, Tony, we'll talk about a Fox Sports infringement case. So, got a lot. We're going to cross across the map here. I think all relatively fun stories. Okay, before we get started, a reminder, our podcast is sponsored by Themis Bar Review, top bar prep company in the entire galaxy. You might be thinking, Dan, it's December 21st, 2022. Why are we talking about the bar? The bar is not going to happen for a couple months. Lies. The bar is in February and July, and you can always use a, a friend to help you take the bar. So that is Themis Bar Review. Use our promo code CONDUCT for a lot of money off. I used to say it was a couple hundred. Now I'll say it's a couple million, but it's not a couple million because bar prep doesn't cost that much money, but you'll get a lot of money off if you use our promo code CONDUCT. Tony, I, I figured we would take this. So people that people know Stephanie, I think. Stephanie's been with us for a while. Tony, you're on, kind of on and off. Tony, we are both professors of law at the New York Law School. You're done. You're, you have your all your students finished taking finals? They finished as of 9 a.m. today. I had a an epic three uh, question exam 
one question was about Nicolas Cage having a meltdown and fan, showing his family jewels on the set of a Marvel studio set. The second question we was- should, We should mention you're the entertainment law professor. There's a reason <laughs> that you're-, you're That's right, exactly. I'm not just doing this for the sake of it. It's the entertainment law final. So anyway, I had that as the first question. I had a question about really big fan of Coolio making a streaming platform called Coolio Plus and basically ripping every single DVD known to mankind and deep faking every character's face and voice to match Coolio. And then another question on Lil Uzi Vert. If you're a fan of Just Wanna Rock, that was tested and it did feature a cameo of Mickey Mouse, but not any, not just any cameo of Mickey Mouse, AI artwork of Mickey Mouse hitting the bomb. So a very interesting fact pattern for students to dissect. I am not going to talk about the answers because I'm sure that there's a student out there saying, what was tested, Professor T? And, you know, mom is the word. You're not going to find out until January 9th when the uh, when the exam grades have to be turned in. Yeah, I mean, listen, Tony, you're telling me about Nick Cage and Family Jewels. I get a little bit concerned, but then it's okay because it's entertainment <laughs> law. It's all for good fun. Remember, uh, remember, Nick Cage was in National Treasure finding other types of jewels. But, uh, you know, this is a very different <laughs> national treasure that we're talking about. I was going to say, Stephanie is my like, unofficial slash official TA in our New York Law School sports law class. Tony, we had more than three questions on our exam, and it was back about 60, I think it was 60 short answer, 10 multiple choice, but you could only you only had to answer 50 of 60. I, like you, my students finished taking the exam as of today. So I uh, texted a few of them, and I'm like, hey, I only gave you guys three and a half hours. Is that enough? And like, that was perfect. That was enough. You know, I try to guess how long it would take someone to take it. Like, but that's like my fear that I write a good exam, but I don't leave enough time or I leave too much time. And then like the people that crammed all on the last particular day, like if it's too long and it's an open book, like anybody can learn anything. If it's a 10 hour open book exam, everyone can get an A. So you got to find that sweet spot. So three and a half hours you know, is what it is. But good luck to all of our students. We is blind grading and really any student that is uh, listening to this or a professor that's listening to this. Flying grading. So as much as Tony and I might like certain people and certain people might call their hand, like obviously professors are going to like the people that contribute to the conversations with blind grading. It's a fair system because I have no idea. The person that got the highest grade in my class last semester did not say an entire word the entire semester. Zero. Same, same then, with uh, mine. Same with mine. And, and, <laughs> and then I called them afterwards. I'm like, hey, like, congrats. And I'm like, just, just so you know, like, I don't know, you, you're getting an A plus, but like, Probably, you know, in another class, maybe it makes sense to, uh, you know, reach out to the professor and whatnot, but whatever. If you get an A+, plus, there's not really much much I can do to, to change your course <laughs> of your life. You're doing pretty well. Okay, let's do this. Let's start. Let's start here. Carlos Correa. So the news today is that the Mets signed Carlos Correa, who's a pretty, you know, interesting career with the Astros for years. Um, then he signed with the Twins on a one-year deal. He has signed a... 12-year, $315 million contract. And if you're waking up today and you've been like, you not haven't been paying attention to the baseball hot stove, you'd be like, okay, that's a lot of money for Carlos Correa. You know, it is what it is. You may have missed, we did not discuss it on the podcast, that, you know, like a couple of days ago, the Giants, San Francisco Giants, my San Francisco Giants, I'm a lifelong fan of the team, signed Carlos Correa for 14 years, $350 million. So like, wait, what happened? Why is he not a member of the Giants? The Giants trade him to the Mets? No. Here's the general gist of what's going on. Every time you sign a big player like that, or you, you know this type of trade or anything like that, any type of acquisition, it, you'll read the fine print. It says pending physical. And 999 times out of a thousand, pending physical doesn't matter because the player just passes the physical. Sometimes it comes up and then trades have to get rescinded or signings might have to get rescinded. I'm going to read a statement from San Francisco Giants President of Baseball Operations, Farhan Zaidi. While we are prohibited from disclosing confidential medical information, as Scott Boris, that's a well-known agent, super agent of baseball, as Scott Boris stated publicly, 
there was a difference of opinion over the results of Carlos's physical examination. We wish Carlos the best. So Carlos, not a member of the Giants. They delayed his introductory press conference. And at 3.30 a.m. today, I'm recording this on Wednesday, Carlos Correa is, is announced as a member of the New York Mets. So Tony, Stephanie, whoever wants to take the first crack at it, this doesn't happen with signings of this magnitude. I don't remember anything like this ever happening. I woke up seeing so many people tweet about this. And there's actually one account that I started recently following on Twitter, at UK Mets NYC 15. It's this British guy who is so jacked. It's not even funny, but every single big signing that they've done this year for the Mets, he does this video and it's pretty much the same thing. Mets Twitter, absolute scenes. It's three o'clock in the morning. I'm watching the telly. The Mets have signed Kodai Senga, Yokoso Kodai Senga. Like he just goes on and on with every single signing. He lost his mind with this Carlos Correa signing. So I knew that if he sent making a video about it, it's legit. And then I look into it and I'm seeing that it seems like there was a legitimate miscommunication with respect to his medical records. I will say this. I'm curious to know how accurate that aspect of the report is only because we found out late in the signing before he eventually had agreed to that initial 13-year offer with the Giants. We had learned that Francisco Lindor had requested Steve Cohen to contact Carlos Correa because apparently they're close friends and Francisco Lindor wanted to play alongside Carlos Correa. Francisco Lindor is obviously the Met shortstop, so Carlos Correa would be playing third base effectively. So I'm just genuinely curious to know how accurate that medical report was. If it was more for the sake of playing in a big town like New York, not to say that San Francisco isn't, but certainly when you have the Yankees across town re-signing Aaron Judge, getting Carlos Rodon, you know, you the Mets lose to Grom, but they get Verlander to work alongside Scherzer. You've been able to bring back Nemo. You have Omar Narvaez. You have a pretty powerhouse team that was on the cusp of going to the playoffs. I can't help but think that that was almost buyer's remorse in the case of Carlos Correa. And somehow, you know, maybe it was a draw of luck that they were able to sneak in the deal with the Mets and get that done. But let me tell you, Uncle Steve is spending the big bucks. He is wiping his rear end with money, and he does not care about any luxury tax whatsoever if it's for the sake of winning a World Series. Yeah, I mean, like, let's let's talk about a couple of things, right? So the luxury tax, uh, I guess this is really kind of where I wanted to take this. And again, Stephanie, if you are not allowed to contribute to this conversation as an, an employee of MLB, you let us know. But this is not anything bad. This is not anything bad. The luxury tax is a collectively bargained for concept. It is a concept that is, in theory, a way to prevent someone like Steve Cohn, who's one of the richest owners in all of professional sports, to overspend other teams to a like an exponent degree, right? It just like the salary cap is put in place, right? Maybe you would think that the salary cap is itself maybe an unfair concept because right, maybe players want to be just be paid as much as possible. Maybe it should be a free market. But the salary cap is a concept that is collectively bargained for. The you know the owners and the players agree to some form of a salary cap. Baseball is a what we call a soft salary cap. You can go over it, but there are certain penalties. Now, there's this new tax that came into play without getting into too much details. What people in the industry are calling the Steve Cohn tax, when Steve Cohn took over ownership of the Mets from the Wilpons, it's pretty abundantly clear that Steve Cohn and the Mets had more money than, let's say, like the Pittsburgh Pirates or the Miami Marlins, right? You know, and they wanted to create some form of competitive balance. So everyone agreed to this. Steve Cohn, this is his first real summer of like insane spending. And Steve Cohn, to your point, Tony, you said, uh, you know, using his, uh, what'd you say? He's using his money as toilet paper? Is that is that the expression used? I've learned it. That's exactly what, what Uncle Stevie did. But just so people are, people are upset, this is very much within the rules, what Steve Cohn's doing. It's his money. If he wants to light piles of money on fire and 
and sign. Unless people like a lot of my friends are texting me today, like, are you upset about the Correa signing? Like it's a giant sale. I'm like, no, I'm not upset about it. Like Carlos Correa, I don't know if this is blasphemous, but like it's been in the majors for eight years. His last four years were certainly not spectacular. I'd say probably his last five years were like above average. And I'm certainly not uh, ready to give him a 13-year contract. Now, the other part that we should talk about, just, just briefly, I, don't, I just think it's interesting. Steph, you're the Yankees fan here. What was the judge contract? Nine years, $360 million. Okay. Nine years, right? We're talking about Carlos Correa signing for 12-year contract, 13-year contract. Why these long contracts all of a sudden is, right? Uh, again, I'm just, just reading the room here. Can read enough replies on, on social media to figure it out. This is not because somebody wants to sign Carlos Correa into his age 40 season. It is a form people are accusing allegedly, like, you know, reportedly, maybe a form of salary cap circumvention that they're spreading this contract out over so many years. that The average 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 annual value of these contracts is certainly less. So it's almost like people have made fun of the Mets for so many years for that Bobby Bonilla contract. It's almost like Bobby Bonilla contracts are back in play. But these are How fitting. That's, that's kind of what's happening here, right? Which is funny, though, because Bobby Bonilla deal was so innovative for its time. And and yet here we are. And the man, I think, is going to be paid in, through 2035. So we still got a, quite a few years in the books. But I completely agree. This is more of a strategy. I really do not think that there's a world where Carlos Correa is going to be playing third base for the Mets into even even into his mid-30s. You know, I think one thing to bear in mind, you know, that you were touching on earlier, Dan, was... Carlos Correa is a good baseball player. Is he an excellent or great baseball player in the grand scheme of things during a 162-game season? Eh, that's debatable. What he is good at, though, is he is an excellent postseason player. I think he has accumulated 15 home runs over his postseason career. He is probably the reason why the Houston Astros have had such a, you know, a good run over the span of their World Series games, whether you're talking about it versus the Dodgers, you know, or or what have you, but it, it just, he's a very good baseball player in that sense, good defensive acumen. Yeah, this is just business as usual. And I think this is something to differ from the Brandon Nimmo deal, which was also a long-term deal. I think genuinely somebody like Brandon Nimmo wants to play out retirement with the Mets and basically ride out his uh, career there. So very interesting signing. I'm very excited as a Mets fan. Hopefully we can uh, get an idea of uh, the kind of player he is. Hopefully he's not a bust like a Jason Bay. I hope not, but very excited nonetheless. Not to scare Mets fans, but Jason Bay's numbers pre-Mets were like significantly better, significantly better than Carlos Correa's <laughs> numbers. So to put a pin on the uh, Bobby Bonilla stuff, if you don't know the Bobby Bonilla deal, he signed, I think he was released by the Mets in 2000. So instead of paying him $5.9 million when they, they still owed him following this 1999 season, the team agreed to pay Bonilla basically $1.1 million every July 1st from 2011 through 2035. And at the time he is 20, 2035, Bobby Bonilla will be 72 years old. So people are complaining like, why are we paying Carlos Correa into his 40s? Eh, you're paying Bobby Bonilla until his, until his <laughs> 70s. So. But yeah, that might be that might be in vogue. And we might see um, this next offseason, or maybe they're going to you know make an amendment to the CBA before that. Hey, is this okay what the Mets are doing? Is this okay that Steve Cohen is blowing through the luxury tax? So I just want to point things out. Sometimes we analyze the issue. Sometimes we issue spot for you. So this is not a normal offseason in terms of spend. Some of that's being driven by Steve Cohen. Tony, I'll agree, disagree with you on one thing. What is Carlos Correa good at? He's just pretty good at timing. It's pretty good at when he became a free agent. He became <laughs> a free agent in the summer of Cohen. Cohen wants to spend a lot of money. So I don't know. I don't have anything else to add on that, but I want to, well, that's a big enough story. People are paying attention. It's a lot of money being spent. This is a podcast that supports you know, we support all the stories. And this is a story that seems to be very good for players and 
for particular owners that have big pockets. I'm not sure if it's so good for owners that don't have big pockets, but yeah, we, we hit all the issues. Let's go to story number two. This is an interesting one. I'm not sure how many people are paying attention to it. You guys know I'm secretly, maybe potentially a closet wrestling fan, but when stories in the wrestling world get put on the front page of newspapers, I'm like, okay, we can now talk about wrestling out in the open. Mandy Rose is now a former WWE star. She has been, I want to say, reportedly let go from the company. I think as of today, WWE has not confirmed of it but directly, but other entities have, and those entities usually are not wrong. So Mandy Rose is a woman superstar within the company. Let's just say this. There was a, I think we talked about this maybe in an episode about a year ago, but Vince McMahon, who then was running the company, put out a kind of a message to all employees that I don't want you making money from third party sources. So be it Twitch, you know, use your imagination as to what it could be. We want to run all of these through the, the channel that is WWE. We don't want you taking side marketing deals. And I guess the implication was that these deals could be cannibalistic of WWE's own uh, enterprise. So they wanted to keep those deals all in-house. Now, is it that wrong what Vince McMahon said? Like, you know, Steph, if your employer said that, like, I think you'd understand it, right? Like you have uh, social media policies. Tony, same thing with you over at ABC. You know, your their rights and clearances manager, Tony, new promotion. What's your new fancy title? So my new title is a senior manager of rights and clearances. Senior manager. And there my, we go. My, congrats. Very, Thank very you. big Thank congrats, you. Tony. And my law firm, if they told if they if any one of our entities, our employers told us that, like, yeah, we'd have to listen to them or else we'd we'd probably lose our jobs. Now, the question is for Mandy Rose. Mandy Rose is not an employee of WWE. She is an independent contractor. There is no wrestlers union. It's just a series of collective independent contractors. Now, we've certainly talked about this concept on our show before. What is an independent contractor? It's someone that's supposed to be like, you know, uh, they're kind of like work for hire. They're like a freelancer. They're a plumber. They're like a, you know, someone that works on like your, your toilets pops in for a day, right? They're not someone that you're supposed to be able to control with that level of, I don't know, those level of mechanisms and restrictions. So, you know, I, WWE kind of gets away with it because there's no union, but like, and there's also up until recently, I mean, there's really no true competitor to, to WWE. There's another entity called AEW, which is getting closer, not quite at WWE level. So if you don't want to listen to Vince McMahon, who now is no longer with the company, if you don't want to listen to Vince, he'll let you go. And there's really no, can, you know, there's nowhere else to go. So you kind of are, might want to listen to Vince. Now, this is where the story kind of takes us. Mandy Rose maybe didn't listen to that ultimatum and was posting content to a site that's akin to OnlyFans. It's a site called FanTime. So, you know, she's a, it's obviously of age. You can post stuff like that. But if you post stuff like that, you might be worried about your job, especially if your boss previously gave an ultimatum and said, don't do stuff like that. So the reporting and the rumors out there is that at some point her content somewhat crossed a line and she was given an ultimatum again by the company. Hey, listen, you're going to have to stop doing that or else. And again, reportedly, Mandy kept doing it. Mandy, again, now reportedly is no longer with the company. So that that's where we're at as of today. Steph, Tony, I will turn it to you. I think the story is very fascinating. Could there be a potential litigation for WWE? Could there be potential exposure there? I think the story is very interesting here. Yeah, no, I completely agree. It's an interesting story in terms of independent contractor versus employee, because it seems like obviously the WWE is clearly trying to take the reins over their um, independent contractors, I guess is what we have to call them, even though they may not be social media platforms and what they're doing publicly in the face of the brand of the WWE. But one interesting point about the timing of Rose's release is that she actually had been the women's NXT champion, which is one of the WWE's developmental leagues for over 400 days. And then suddenly on December 13th, just last week, she lost the title. And the very next day is when the WWE 
actually fired her. So I'm kind of curious as to when Rose really started using this fan time platform, when they gave her that second warning, I guess, and whether she was really released because of her presence on fan time or whether she was released because she no longer was holding the title and they may not need her for the purposes of the company as much anymore because someone else was now holding the title. So I think that was kind of just an interesting point for sure in this whole debacle. But again, it's hard to say whether or not they're actually considered independent contractors because based on some of the statements by the then CEO and now CEO, it really does provide some context as to the level of direction and control that they have, at least with respect to social media platforms and the publicity side of things. I think that's, you pretty much hit the nail right on the head, Steph. I think one other thing that we should also consider is, I'd be very curious to know what the employment agreement was between WWE and Mandy Rose. And I only mention that because this is actually pretty much public knowledge. When you have wrestlers joining, they sign employment agreements where basically they agree that the persona that they take on in the ring and, you know, who their character is, is the intellectual property of the of WWE. You can't just take that character with you and leave. I, I think that that happened with Daniel Bryan, if I'm not mistaken, when he left to go to the competitor wrestling league and, you know, he couldn't bring his uh, iconic chant with him over to that, uh, to I think it was NXT or one of the other. It was AEW, but it's so it's so funny you say that. Like he doesn't say yes, but the fans know to do it. So if the right. fans can right. say, I mean, you and I can say yes right now, but if if, if Daniel Bryan eggs them on, it's a little bit different. So he like yeah. throws his hands up a little bit, and then like the crowd <laughs> knows it. But anyway, yeah. So so in that point, you know, I, I think I'd be curious to know if part of her employment agreement lays out. Certainly the relationship between her and WWE, but more importantly, does anything related to her character or her entertainer name connect with what she does outside the ring? Because at the end of the day, if let's say Mandy Rose, the character name that she bears in the ring is a registered trademark with World Wrestling Entertainment, and she wants to start a fan time account or anything else that would allow her to monetize off of her name, her image, and her likeness. There's a moment where you have to pause and say, well, is this an extension of my work for hire situation where I'm under the employee of my employer? Or is this something independent? This is just me, you know, Amanda Rose Sacamano. That's her full legal name. That, you know, am I doing it under that guise and I'm making money on fan time? So it's a lot to consider, but a really, really interesting story nonetheless that will boil down primarily to the legalese in the contract and anything else that could point to other evidence that can show who she was in terms of being an independent contractor or an employee. I got to give you an interesting, you know, it's in line here. WWE has deals, brand deals with like, uh, they make like wrestling, wrestling action figures. They obviously have like television deals. They're on Fox, they're on different networks. So what's being, again, like reportedly, allegedly, whatever we want to call it, just the rumor, the rumor mill out here is that Mandy's content on this OnlyFans account, this Akin account, that that content breached the parameters of an agreement that WWE had with Mattel, the toy maker. So it's a third-party contract, but that's, again, to the question that WWE is like, don't do side deals. We want to control them. Like, I do contractual agreements for uh, entities. I do them for, you know, entertainers in different shapes and forms. But like, if WWE's lawyers want to have their hands on all agreements with respect to what you can and can't post for this particular reason... Like and this it makes sense because if WWE is going to put you out there and license out your name, image, and likeness, they own it. 
right? We can have another story about like different wrestlers who lost their ability, like fun side story. Do you remember this guy, Tony, the ultimate warrior? Do you remember him? Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. So the ultimate warrior had a dispute with WWE after he left. And he's like, you know what I'm going to do WWE? You really want to know what I'm going to do? I'm going to change my name to warrior. Good luck with that. My name is now warrior. Good luck. So Tony, right? You're the IP yeah. professor. He's good. Once he changes his own name to the warrior, he's good. That's it. Exactly. And it, it's like I said, this is, you can go look at, look this up. If you just type in WWE wrestler employment agreements, everything is redacted. But for whatever reason, the one clauses that remain are all the ones about IP, their stage name, their trademarks and characters that the WWE retains. That is, I think, the smoking gun here, the MacGuffin of this whole story. Yeah. but And, and to that point, I and mean, we'll get back to the Mandy stuff, but like, I think, I think that point, what WWE does, and I've heard them, I've heard WWE Brass explain it on different shows, but they're basically saying like, we're investing in you. We want to, you know, put our heart and soul into you to build you up. That's why when people come to WWE, 99% of the time, they'll change their name to something. So like people know who The Undertaker is, right, Tony? You know The Undertaker, you're not a big wrestling guy. I'm sure you don't know his real name, right? I know his real name. No, his, real name is Mark, <laughs> his real name is Mark Calloway, but the WWE protecting Undertaker kind of limits his mobility. I mean, people know who he is at this point, but same same concept. So, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's the rumor here that Mattel, a contract that WWE had with Mattel is basically, like, listen, if we're making kids toys for people, we can't have one of your, you know, superstars being like uh, posting an OnlyFans contract. And it seems like she was given a, you know, some... Anyway, but here's here's the fun kind of prologue to the story. Okay, so she gets fired. People might feel bad for her, like, oh, it's not fair and whatever. The story that's coming out today, WWE's, you know, I guess wrestlers have agents, their own particular agents. There was a claim today that Mandy Rose, in her time since she's been fired, which has been like, I don't know, 10 days, that Mandy Rose has made a whopping $500,000 in that 10-day period from the additional exposure that's been given her by non-wrestling fans now knowing her name, Mandy Rose, and going to whatever this site is and paying for subscriptions, however much this is. $500,000. So I, I think what's, what's being put out there is that the wrestlers are making more from the side content than they are from their actual WWE contracts. So Mandy Rose is not, people know John Cena, The Rock, you know, Ronda Rousey's wrestler. Maybe people go, go a little bit further into other people. But like, if you're able to make that much money, $500,000 in 10 days, uh, you know, maybe you don't need, you don't need wrestling. So now all of a sudden, right, you're leveraged to be able to make money. Like WWE's got to be a little bit careful. They could build up a star and lose them. But Tony, to your point, you said something very interesting, and I'm certainly not going to do some some research on this. Maybe one of our, actually, do not do that. You're going to get in trouble. But like, I'm curious from an intellectual standpoint, the content that she's posting, is she doing it within the guise of being Mandy Rose or is she doing it within the context of being Amanda Rose Sakamano, right? Where is that line? And if Mattel doesn't know where the line is, WWE doesn't know where it is, it's very different. So it's not like you're the undertaker and you could put on like, you know, the costume and the hat. Like it's very, like it's this, unclear. Like this is very similar almost to what would happen with China. China also went into adult entertainment and I think she <laughs> marketed herself as China. So she did. She did. She, <laughs> that, and then, and, but rightfully so she got in trouble with WWE and I think rightfully or right, rightfully or wrongfully WWE or China is not in the WWE hall of fame, even though she was like maybe the most famous woman of the, that attitude Absolutely. era when you and I grew up. Absolutely. And I think for that reason, she just very blatantly, you know, used her name and you know, whatever. It's a different side story. And I don't know. Let's see. It's so funny. Like, isn't it? It's just me. Like, all the tides are turning and all these, like, like the sports betting world is turning. Like, the NCAA world is turning. And now, like, WWE is turning. We're going to talk maybe a little bit about, like, Live Golf. Like, all of these entities in the last, like, five years, these big behemoths, like, there's, like, a lot of disruption in the space. Am I crazy? Like, I feel no, like that's happening. No, Paradigm is definitely shifting. And I think, you know, changes in society are warranting these kind of uh, new discussions for sure. The fact of the matter here is everything is just moving digital. And that seems to be the, the kind of catalyst that's getting everything 
to change in all of these different areas based on viewership on social media and the way that I guess our generation is kind of growing up and being exposed to sports in an entirely new way. So it's going to be an interesting to see what happens in 2023 as that comes up on us very closely and soon here. While we are on it, Steph, I mentioned it very quickly. What is, I mentioned like Live and PGA Tour were changing. Is there an update we have on uh, the Live front, maybe, perhaps? Oh, there's an update, that's for sure. Augusta National Golf Club, obviously everyone knows Augusta from the famous Masters Tournament, which is interesting because it's actually separate from the PGA Tour. The Masters is entirely separate, just like the U.S. Open is. And so the Augusta National Golf Club basically came out and said they're going to allow live players to play in the tournament based on their own criteria. And just today it came out that now there may be some protesters from the families and survivors of the 9-11 attacks. So it's going to be an interesting tournament, to say the least. And I will say, based on my experience in college, when I had the opportunity to be a a server at Augusta National during the Masters, it might be a little bit hard for anyone to really get a good view on the tournament, whether or not you have, if only if you have a ticket to go inside, just because of the tall grass and the tall trees on the outside there, you can't really see anything within the actual course or on the grounds. But, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens there and whether or not Augusta National rescinds their decision to allow the live players to compete. That remains to be seen. But as of now, they are allowed to compete. So I guess good luck to them and good luck to the rest of the field. Interesting. I mean, we we talked about this, obviously, John Nucci was on the show. We had a couple of golf episodes. We're like, it's not that big of a deal if the PGA Tour and live separate because how many like. I don't know. I'm not going to call anybody out, but like I watch some random PGA tour events, like very randomly, but I certainly watch all of the, you know, all, all of the majors. So if, if the live golfers were not allowed to play in the majors, like that's, that's a game changer. But if they're allowed to play in the majors, like I don't think casual golf fans or golf fans are going to realize that people are gone. So a good update on that front. And again, it's more disruption to the market and probably it's good for PGA tour golfers. Those that didn't affect, they're obviously making more money. Live golfers are making more money. So uh, can we be that upset if people are making more money on both sides? Obviously, you know, uh, we probably have people listening to this and and us as well. Like, is it kind of weird about the whole like Saudi Arabia connection and money being put over there and golfers refusing to answer questions about where, you know, where the money comes from for live? Like, yes, it's a little strange, but I don't know. Uh, the result is that everyone's getting paid more money for their profession. So, you know, all power to, to sports fans. Okay, let's do this one quick. Speaking of kind of things changing, interesting maybe tech side. Steph, I'm happy, uh, you know, we were talking offline that this came up in casual conversation with friends. It came up in conversation with my friends as well. So... Okay, we we talk about, you know, kind of emerging issues in sports. This is kind of an emerging issue in in tech, but there is there is a fun uh, law connection. So this podcast is not sponsored by the entity I'm about to say. Do do you guys have Clear? I've used Clear actually for Comic-Con. Yes. Do do you have Clear? Not actively using it, but I've used it before. Okay, Steph, Clear? I I used to have Clear, but now I switch over to TSA PreCheck. Okay, I have never used Clear. I think the concept of like, scanning my like face and my retinas, like get access to things kind of bizarre. It's creepy. Um, creepy, right? But sometimes you might be at a venue that scans your face and your retina without you even knowing about it. That is where we find ourselves. Story to talk about here is uh, an interesting, you know, dispute down brewing between MSG, Madison Square Garden, and people that MSG doesn't like. Okay, so here's a story. There's an attorney by the name of Kelly Con- or Conlon. She was on a trip to New York City with like, a, I guess, a Girl Scout trip of some sort. And they went to Radio City Music Hall to see a Christmas spectacular show. So everyone, I guess, is going through the metal detectors. Everyone's good to go. 
And then like the loudspeaker's like scarf, long hair, grabber, and public enemy and, number one, basically. Yeah. And, and <laughs> you know, I'm, 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 I think the line was, uh, she goes, it was pretty simultaneous. I think to me going through the metal detectors that I heard over at intercom, I heard them say woman with long, dark hair and a gray scarf. That's a quote from her. So she gets pulled out of line and they, according to her, she says that they knew her name. They knew what firm she worked at. And I guess she's, she's being told that she's at a firm that is involved in litigation against an entity that MSG owns. So she thought it was weird. She makes some type of public comment and MSG responds and they somewhat acknowledge this. They write, quote, this is from an MSG spokesperson. MSG instituted a straightforward policy that precludes attorneys pursuing active litigation against the company from attending events at our venues until that litigation has been resolved. While we understand this policy is disappointing to some, we cannot ignore the fact that litigation creates an inherently adverse environment. All impacted attorneys were notified of the policy, including her, the firm that she's at, which was notified twice. So, OK, before we get further, what about this policy? If you sue MSG, you're you're not even suing them. If you're an attorney at a firm that sues an MSG entity, you can no longer go to Dick's games, the you know the crisp spectacular Rangers games. Monster truck rally, the Harlem Globetrotters. You can't go to anything. Like, is that fair, team? Not at all. I mean, I'm just thinking of like that trending TikTok sound. I'm petty. Yeah, yeah, I'm petty. <laughs> P-E to the T-T-Y. This is so petty, everybody. I, I mean, like, like first off, you're definitely going to make <laughs> these types of people, like these attorneys that, like, like uh, Kelly Conlon, a Nets fan instantaneously. Number one, they're going to go to jump, ju- jump ship hard. to go to, to, to Barclays. But number two, I mean, like if that's not discriminatory behavior, then I don't know what is. What a bizarre policy. And I mean, I can understand kind of the intent behind it, but I mean, she's not there as an attorney. She's there as a consumer paying money to go see an event. So to me, it's like, it's kind of like a no-brainer. You're depriving a consumer of access to a luxury that they're, you know, paying for. Very, very bizarre, though. I completely agree with uh, that sentiment, especially because we forgot to leave out. She was a mom who was taking her daughter and other Girl Scouts on a Girl Scout field trip. How wholesome could you get? Literally, how wholesome. Girl Related Scout. question. Were you a Girl Scout, Steph? I was a Girl Scout. Not to the top level, but I was a Daisy and a Brownie. But another point, too, which I was reading about earlier, is one of the partners at the firm where this mom works then kind of came out and basically is made a statement that kind of challenges MSG's license with the state liquor authority. I saw that. I saw that. Because the liquor authority basically requires... MSG to admit members of the public unless there are people who would be disruptive who constitute a security threat. So how is this mom constituting a security threat? She's literally chaperoning a Girl Scout field trip with her daughter and her daughter's friends and other moms. Everyone else got to go in. She had to wait outside. I mean, clearly she didn't disrupt anything outside. So I wouldn't say that she was a security threat. So I think it's very interesting. And and whether or not there's going to be anything that comes out of this, we'll see. But I think there might be able to be something happening so there's, here. There's an expression that we use when we're uh, dealing with like discovery items and litigation. If you say someone's request is overbroad, you could say like the request is oh, it's too too much, too all-encompassing. You would say it's overbroad and unduly burdensome. I think that expression applies here. 
right? Like I can play devil's advocate for a second. Let's say, for example, there was like a slip and fall at the arena or like a trip and fall. And there was like a defective condition in uh, like the walkway or the escalator or something like that. Like if an attorney bought a ticket to a Knicks game to like look at that defective condition and like basically conduct like a site inspection without the other side, like that's not really allowed. But like if it's a condition that relates to being at the arena, this seems to be a lawsuit against a restaurant. Like she wasn't at the place where the, you know, that involves the litigation. And also we should mention, right? Like, okay, so that's number one. Could I say that MSG maybe shouldn't allow attorneys to come to the, the venue where they're suing the, for something that's occurring at the venue? Like maybe, or like a, like a, you know, a, an employment related dispute. And like, maybe you're trying to come in to talk to the ushers or talk to like the security people and like conduct, you know, uh, ex parte, like witness interviews. Like, yeah, that, that doesn't sound fair. But like this, this alleged lawsuit here that's involved is like a restaurant that has nothing to do. I don't think it's, it's actually at MSG. That's number one. But how about the fact that like, I don't know, I'm, I'm at a law firm, like I see conflicts checks coming in all day. It's like, hey, does anybody know anyone like that's affiliated with this party or this party? Because law firms have to run conflicts checks. So you're not like representing two sides of an equation, or maybe you've done previous work for one entity. And now you're adverse to them. Like there's all these internal checks in place. Now you might have to run like a conflict check just to be like, hey, I'd like to go to games at MSG, so I'd rather you not bring them in as a client. Like, that's crazy. Like, it's it's kind of throwing the model on its head. It's just a very interesting dynamic for sure. And, and I'm actually want to go back to something you said earlier about, you know, attorneys kind of going to a stadium or an arena to scout out the scene, kind of like do their own de facto discovery. You know, I think like in the same vein, you know, what's to say that, you know, a, let's say a fan has a slip and fall at a stadium, but they want to go back to the stadium for just pure ple- pleasure and enjoyment. Can't go. They're they can't they can't exactly because it's like not now that scenario to me seems more sensible because the stadium now views that person as liability and they don't want they don't want them to be like you know the plaintiff that's just going to keep suing and over so, and over. So here's a quote from I think I think Steph this is the same partner that you're referencing at this firm where this mom works. Quote: This whole scheme is a pretext for doing collective punishment on adversaries who would dare sue MSG in their multi-billion-dollar network. So that's Tony. What you're kind of saying it's like how dare you sue us? Like let's say your diehard Nick and Nick's fan like does a slip and fall at the arena like slip and fall is like literally I don't know if people don't know that term it's like there's a pad, like a wet floor sign and like you, you slip and you fall and you hurt yourself that's uh, exactly or trip and fall use your use your judgment as to what a trip and fall would might be <laughs> I mean that's that seems to be the tactic so I guess there is other litigation right now in a different case about the permissibility of that system but it's not like there's no like statewide regulations or guidance so Steph that's why I think probably that like state liquor authority threat is being put out there. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. James Dolan, it's not, not shocking that uh, he would engage in this type of conduct. He's known. Tony, what was that fun song that you were just singing? Petty. <laughs> I'm petty. Yeah. Yeah. I'm petty. P E to the T T Y. Now, um, now that's stuck in your head. Now you're going to go on TikTok and you're just going to flip through all those petty videos. I'll, listen, I'm on a lot of forms of social media. I am off. TikTok. I'm not on TikTok. I'm off the grid. All right. So um, just do it on Instagram. It's, it's all for Instagram too. No, I, I, man, I, I think I've heard it. Just, I'm not going to acknowledge <laughs> that to anybody. So let's let's do this. So we're talking about you know owners with dead conduct. Another story that we've covered, we have an update on it. Been a pretty sizable substantive update. The Phoenix Suns. So we talked at length about this stuff. I think it's an episode you and I did together once upon a time. You know, it's somewhat in line with our Washington Commanders handling. Robert Sarver was the owner of the Phoenix Suns. We'll see how much of the team. I don't think he's retaining any any interest in the team, but the team uh, goes up for sale. Robert Sarver said he was voluntarily selling the team after these allegations came out of kind of toxic workplace, sexual harassment in the workplace. Robert Sarver 
making comments of, you know, homophobic type comments, uh, racist type uh, allegations, you know, you name it. Robert Sarver was uh, accused of it. And it was kind of these ugly allegations. Robert Sarver denied it at first. And ESPN, Axer Holmes over there had put out a, a very long report, just like, you know, we, we had the Washington Commanders ESPN investigative team. They put out this long report. Both reports were denied by the sources, be it one Robert Sarver and one Dan Snyder. And like, wouldn't you know, the NBA confirmed the, the Robert Sarver ESPN report. And then Congress seemed to confirm the Dan Snyder report. So we're still waiting for the NFL's report, but we'll deal with that. But once the NBA confirmed the Robert Sarver report, Robert Sarver went from like saying this is not true. He just goes like, you know what, white flag, I'll voluntarily sell the team. So a couple months have passed. And now we have some buyers. We have a price tag for billion with the B $4 billion has now reset the NBA market. It was once upon a time uh, reset by Steve Ballmer, who bought the Clippers guys, I think for 2 billion, 2 billion, yeah, 2 billion. Yeah. Yep. And now, right. That was a Los Angeles market, the Los Angeles Clippers. Now the Phoenix suns less than uh, you know, a decade later are now selling for double what a team sold in Los Angeles guys. This is a rocket ship team valuation through the moon. Steph, what do we have uh, on the Phoenix sun sale? Basically, Matt Ishbian, billionaire mortgage lender, as you said, $4 billion with a B. And now that Sarver is out, Ishbia is in. And apparently Ishbia is a well-known, I guess, guy in the league office. And he's pretty much in with Adam Silver, who's the commissioner, and has also developed other relationships with some of the other NBA owners. While he will have to undergo a background check still and a vote of approval from the Board of Governors, and that's pretty much just a formality and no one has found anything yet um, that would, you know, get rid of his chances of making this uh, purchase official. And it also sounds like one of his brothers, is, who's a founding partner in Shore Capital, is going to make a significant investment and also serve as alternate governor. But now Ishbia will be uh, the majority owner of the Phoenix Sun, so We'll see where that takes Chris Paul and uh, Devin Booker in the future. You forgot one thing about Matt Ishbia. Very important. NCAA college basketball champion. He played yes. college basketball for three years oh. at Michigan State, won a national title in the 99-2000 season. He averaged a whopping half a point per game. Not, not the best college basketball <laughs> player, but obviously made it, made it there. He averaged a whopping two minutes a game, but he was on the roster. People can look up his picture, but we have now a very young owner or soon to be owner. 42 years young. His net worth is $5 billion. So, you know, once upon a time, a guy, Mark Cuban, was in injected into the league, a young, kind of brash, exciting owner. And the NBA underwent a lot of change. And we undersaw, you know, underwent kind of the player empowerment era, you know, under, I want to say not under Cuban's watch, but he's probably the most outspoken owner in the league. And it was a guy, Mark Cuban, who kind of like hurt his personal wealth into the Dallas Mavericks training facility and really, you know, Steph, not a friend, I'd say probably someone, you know, maybe on a first name basis, Mark Lazary, who's Someone you spoke to through, uh, he's a New York Law School alum, uh, yes, part owner yes. of, the, uh, of the Milwaukee Bucks, majority owner. But, you know, 20 years later, Lazary is now owner of the team and puts his own personal wealth into the, you know, into the stadium. So that that wasn't a thing pre like really that big before Cuban. So now we have a guy, Matt Ishbia, in his 40s. He's the he's worth $5 billion, the 500th richest person in the world. And he's now investing I think I think he probably I don't know he's investing a large portion of his personal wealth into buying this team. So that's that's what people are doing nowadays. They're putting money into their team. So I think it's very interesting. And I guess this will kind of pivot to our Dan Snyder stuff. It's like I don't for the life of me, I don't understand why Dan Snyder like does he enjoy being under the public microscope of just like zeroing in on his life? Like if Dan Snyder sold the team tomorrow, 
It's an NFL team. They'd get more than $4 billion. It's an NFL team versus an NBA team. The DC market, I think, you know, maybe it's right on par with Phoenix. I think it's a little bit bigger than Phoenix. Steph, is your DC, is DC a bigger market, like, you know, objectively than Phoenix? I, like, both like top I would, eight markets, top 10 markets? Yeah, I mean, I would say Washington, DC is. You saw what happened with like the Nationals when right. they started in DC. They got immediate fans. I think I would, and Caps, obviously, Wizards. I would say it's definitely a bigger market. So, like, Dan Kleiner can wave the white flag. He's going to get more than $4 billion, $7 billion, $8 billion, $6 billion. I have no idea why someone, when we, we understand the sports market, you know, the sports you know, team valuation market, why someone would continue to fight Congress and, and fight so brazenly when there's like, literally, again, I'll say it, say it again, a pot of gold waiting on the other end of the rainbow. Like, I don't, I don't quite understand it. It's ego. It's totally ego. No questions asked. I mean, he's, he's been denying Every allegation under the sun, he's been under total scrutiny as an owner. And I think, you know, the power trip has just gotten to him. You know, I think one point going back to the whole issue of the uh, sun sale, it is interesting, correctly pointing out that, you know, of all the cities, of all the markets, to have a team valued at $4 billion, it's the Phoenix Suns. I think this is underlining how secondary markets are becoming a pretty, pretty much a hotbed for, for sports. I mean, just look at Las Vegas. It all started with the Las Vegas Knights coming. Well, first the NCAA uh, tournaments were there. Then I would say the the rise of the Las Vegas Golden Knights, and then the inclusion of the Las Vegas uh, Raiders, the relocation of from the Oakland to there. I mean, what's to say that in five years or maybe ten years time we're going to get a baseball team there or even a basketball team? So I, I think that. What what happened here was pretty much a sound decision or a sound move for Matt Ishbia, but also could also serve as a calling card for other cities to say, look, if that could happen with Phoenix, it could happen to your city. You just have to find the right buyer. I agree with that completely. And I just want to say, too, the first round of the bidding process for the Washington Commanders actually closes this week. And it seems like league sources are estimating that the full franchise would sell between five and a half and six and a half billion. Wow. So definitely more than the Suns, but I guess we'll see what happens. Uh, any any predictions? Does anyone have any predictions on on who's you know who's, gonna you take know who's it? not going to buy the team? The guy that that uh, sold the Aaron Judge ball. I think he's going to be uh, a couple <laughs> a couple billion short. Isn't uh, Jeff Bezos teaming up with uh, Jay-Z or something on... Uh... I, yeah, I saw that. Jeff, Maybe Jeff Bezos. He's that would be like very, very interesting. He's getting like, yeah, yeah. every celebrity to say they're contributing to it, which yeah, before probably you know, is going to announce that he's part of the deal too. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, you know, I think the moral of the story is like, you know, people... Maybe it was different pre-social media, but like now that fans do have a voice and you can really just put it directly out on Twitter and you could get a movement behind it and you can't be kind of like at the mercy of like a, a newspaper picking up your story or something like that, or local news, like you just go straight to Twitter and people can hear it. So, you know, these stories, like the ESPN story hit the way it did Snyder stuff and the Phoenix Sun stuff, because fans took it and ran with it, retweeted it. And the league office saw that partner started to pull out. So, you know, in this day and age, again, for better force, fans do have a direct voice and the NBA, NFL, these leagues are hearing it. So, so Sarver is out because of some good reporting, but also because of the fans reaction to that. So I think it's definitely important. Let's do one final topic. Tony, you're the IP professor. I asked if there's any interesting stories on your radar and you came back with one that I have not heard of at all. So I will let you explain it as, as only you can, Tony. This, I have to give credit to a sports law legend himself, Mike McCann, for uh, reporting on this, but a very interesting patent infringement lawsuit 
related to Fox Sports and their scheduling football games, specifically how they decide to circulate games when they do. And I think this was very interesting because typically you would think that with a broadcast company like Fox Sports, they would be more in the realm of copyright infringement, maybe even trademark infringement. That would be a bit of a stretch nonetheless. But patent infringement is quite unique. So this lawsuit involves a, an analytics company that is called Recentive Analytics. And they have registered two patents in the U.S. Patent Trademark Office, utility patents, for, quote, systems and methods for automatically and dynamically generating a network map. If you don't understand what the hell that means, uh, to meet you and me both. But in reading the, the patent itself, what it sounds like the patent is related to is creating an algorithm that allows scheduling to take place. And I guess they use a number of factors to do this. What's interesting, though, is that Recentive Analytics has used NFL or has worked at least with the NFL in the past to create scheduling for the variety of different games that would air at specific times. And, you know, teams would match head to head with certain uh, teams. So, you know, this company has worked with the NFL in the past. The allegation in this patent infringement lawsuit is that Fox Sports essentially used the exact same technology that Recentive Analytics uses to decide which games they're going to play at what times and basically drive up viewership, drive up ad sales, so on and so forth. Now, you're probably wondering, like, why is, why are we even talking about this? I, I think one, it's very, again, very interesting that a broadcast company is involved in a patent infringement lawsuit. But two, I think that this is a good shout out to utility patents, which often doesn't get a lot of love. So just so everybody knows, utility patents can cover inventions, algorithms, you know, systems, methods, anything of that sort that meet the four requirements of patentability, patentable subject matter, usefulness, novelty, and non-obviousness. It goes through a rigorous process through the U.S. Patent Trademark Office before you even get a patent grant. When a patent is granted, the inventor and the U.S. Patent Trademark Office have essentially gone back and forth as to what the registrant of that patent is trying to protect. They want exclusivity to certain things related to that invention. And though that exclusivity is what are called claims. So essentially, when you read the last few pages of a patent registration patent grant, you'll see that there are, uh, there's a clause that says we claim or I, the inventor, claim. And it lists what the invention is trying to protect. And essentially, those claims are designed to prevent other inventions from coming in and mimicking exactly the same thing that that invention is doing. So it's interesting because the whole premise of a patent infringement lawsuit is that the infringer is violating one of those claims. So very interesting lawsuit. We don't have any answer yet from Fox Sports. They have made a comment that they're reviewing the lawsuit in real time, but this was only filed about more or less three weeks ago. So this might be a very interesting utility patent infringement lawsuit as we head into 2023. Yeah, I think it's also interesting too, when you think of like software agreements and the certain terms that perhaps they had to agree to prior in a deal that basically says like, you're not allowed to circumvent or try and take apart any sort of the proprietary code underneath the system, which seemingly sounds like they may or may not have done. So it's definitely an interesting case to follow and just goes to show that you got to make sure you have all those key provisions in your contracts, people. Yep, absolutely. 
So I think, I think before we uh, put this in the books, I'm going to do a what to watch for. A reminder, our podcast is sponsored by the law firm of Orr and Horgan. They are our guys for all things college sports. You have a regulatory issue, you have an athlete issue, you have an NIL issue, you have a collective issue. I reached out to Tom this week for ooh, a question about a contract regarding an NIL entity, we'll say. But Tom obviously had the answer because Tom and Connor, our friends over there at Nebraska's Orr and Horgan Law Firm, are the best. So if you need to get in touch with them or you have a question about college athletes, we are not able to help you. We can always point you in the right direction, but we would tell you that Orrin Horgan, friends of the show, they are great in that particular space. So let's do this. Let's do this as we close. I want to do a what to watch for. I imagine we have a couple of options here. I'll I'll go with one, guys. Maybe you were not expecting me to do. My what to watch for is the future of Twitter, which was once my uh, favorite platform. You know, it still is to some extent, but if you tell people that you love Twitter, it now has a very different connotation to it. So for those that don't know, and I was baiting it, bringing it up during the Carlos Correa stuff. But like, obviously the Giants, you know, has showed an interest in Carlos Correa. They got really close to the finish line. And then they're like, you know what? We're good. You can go sign with the Mets. Elon Musk, once upon a time, said like, I want to buy Twitter. And now lawyers were hired, agreements were signed. You know, in the process of doing his due diligence, you know, Elon Musk kind of said, well, I have issues with certain things. And during my due diligence check, there were too many bots. And it was determined by the lawyers that like Elon had gone too far and those objections to Twitter while he was in the middle of do, do, like doing his due diligence, those were not legit. And the, Twitter was actually going to force Elon to buy the company. So what did he do? He kind of did an about face and just like, you know what? Okay, I'll buy the, the Twitter at the evaluation that I said. And now I own Twitter. So I think we were all kind of nervous as to what would happen in the Elon Musk era. And let's just say it has not started off well. I think people are very concerned that the the platform might not exist. Elon, again, not a political podcast, just pointing things out. He said, uh, you know, this is going to be a, a platform for freedom of speech. And again, again, not to talk about anything political. All of a sudden, when reporters' accounts start to be banned from the platform, that makes me think that maybe there is not freedom of speech on the platform. And again, no requirement that there's freedom of speech because it is a private entity. We've always said that it's not a public forum. But I'm a little concerned. Twitter is the place where I got my sports law start and I generally get all my news from. And now I'm I'm concerned that Twitter might not exist, you know, in five years or where there's going to be a new form of Twitter. So I guess it's my what to watch for, but it's not nothing. Well, so well, you have two me. options. You can join Mastodon like a lot of people, or you could join the accolades of someone like myself and do lifting videos to sports law and, you know, on get, TikTok, on TikTok, get yourself back on TikTok. Can we, Although can we that's just... that's a breach of being, you know, that that's on the verge of being banned potentially too in the U.S., what it, can can we ask like well actually we should do this we're the legal legal show obviously Twitter put out a release this week and Stephanie and I were talking about it through our conduct stuff like I use something called Linktree on my Instagram and my Twitter and Linktree is a way to click on it you could see the other stuff like I'm here's my Instagram account my LinkedIn you know the podcast links whatever so just a very helpful thing because you can only put one link in your bio but Linktree is smart and they let you link to other stuff so I guess people were making it a habit of posting like. Hey, if Twitter ends tomorrow, here's my other social media handles on other accounts. Like here's my Mastodon account, which we're not on. I'm not on Mastodon. Tony, are you on Mastodon? No. Okay. But like too, too many social media accounts. But but people were advertising other accounts using their Twitter accounts. So I think understandably, Twitter, Elon's like, yeah, that's not gonna happen. So they put out a memo like, like all these things, like if you post these, like you're gonna be kicked off of Twitter. And one of them was like Linktree. So Linktree was like all upset and like they sent out an email. I, I saw it on my like, Whatever. So Twitter walks that back. But like now all of a sudden there's a lot more things you can't do on Twitter that I don't think people expected in the Elon era. So 
That's where we're at. That's where we're at. I don't know if I'm going to be joining Mastodon. It doesn't sound that fun. Sabretooth Tiger. <laughs> we should we should make a new a new social media account. Steph, what to watch for? After the Salt Bay incident um, at the World Cup final this past weekend, I'm very curious to see what other um, sports final games Salt Bay will be creepily popping up on the field, trying to touch the trophy, trying to get a picture with the star of the team. It'll be interesting to see, but I mean, if you haven't seen it, basically, after an unbelievable World Cup final match between Argentina and France, Argentina obviously won, Messi got that World Cup title, and somehow Salt Bay made his way onto the field, and he basically was just following Messi around, trying to get a photo with him. It seemed like at first Messi had no idea who he was, that video surfacing on the internet, then Salt Bay somehow actually was able to hold the World Cup trophy, which I've come to find is in violation of a very, very strict FIFA rule where only former winners and heads of the state are allowed to actually touch the World Cup trophy. And seemingly Salt Bay is now banned from the U.S. Open Cup. It was just announced on Twitter so, you know, I have a funny feeling that Salt Bay will no longer be making his way onto any future World Cup fields, whether or not the next one is taking place across the United States or not. He definitely will not be on the field. And judging by uh, the backlash uh, from, from this sports league, I would say that uh, he won't be making it on the field for the NFL Super Bowl, perhaps the NBA Finals. The Masters, I I can't see Salt Bay anywhere else, and I certainly cannot afford to go to his restaurant. So those of you out there that have had the privilege, um, congratulations to you, because I just cannot fathom spending enough money on steak. He's going to dry age way more than his dry age (laughs) steaks, which are so janky. I'm one of those people that's gone to the restaurant. Oh, okay. Okay. We should say for a second, because I posted this, I, you know, we were having fun. And Stephanie, I was not aware up until the point that you said that there was an actual FIFA rule. I was I was under the impression this was an unwritten rule, like don't touch the Stanley Cup. You're telling that FIFA memorialized this rule into an actual book? Yeah, it's a huge rule, apparently. And they take it very seriously, I guess, when it transferred from its home in Zurich handlers they have to wear gloves so they don't fall foul of the rule and i guess people had noticed that as the trophy was taken out from the louis vuitton briefcase that only iker casillas i'm probably not pronouncing his name correctly was able to handle the trophy because he was a former winner so it's a very strict rule in fifa that obviously salt day is not a former winner or um, a head of state so he was not one of the privileged people that are allowed to touch it so he broke it I will say, I know who Salt Bay is. If people don't, there was I posted this on LinkedIn and all social. I was saying he should motion to ban him from all sporting events for eternity, which sounds like is happening. So I'll, I'll take some, <laughs> some, some credit for that. But if people don't know who Salt Bay is, which some people were saying in my replies, he's the guy, if you don't know who he is, you've definitely seen the video. He's the guy that like, sprinkles salt on steak like very it's a bounce off the elbow and he does he slices the steak while wearing sunglasses even if it's indoors yeah it's it's, dim he's just like viral steak guy that puts salt on steak i I don't know why people care about him but he's he's turkish he's not argentinian and if you watch the videos players look kind of odd uh you know he's not wearing gloves not doing anything this and he's not just touching it he's pulling it away pulling it out of players hands so it is an odd one but uh yes steph that's a great one i'm looking forward to salt bay being 
banned from all sporting events for eternity and potentially shot onto the moon. That would be great. Get rid of Salt Bay forever. Okay, Tony, set us home. You are what to watch for. So I have to say it's it's winter break. You know, if you're if you went through the law school finals torture season and you're trying to have some downtime, I got you hooked. You must watch, if you have not watched it, The White Lotus. And we already just wrapped up the second season. First season was, I believe, from last year. But the common denominator between the first season and the second season is that it's about this hotel chain called The White Lotus. It's set in different locations. Season one was based in Maui, if I'm not mistaken. Season two was in Sicily. And an exceptional cast, just exceptional writing from HBO. Bar none, probably some of the best writing you'll ever see from an HBO show. And it's essentially a redefined version of a whodunit where each season starts with the ending where somebody dies and you're trying to figure out who died. And as the story progresses episode by episode, you draw certain conclusions and you think, oh yeah, definitely, definitely this is, uh, you know, um, in the realm of uh, likelihood, you know, this person died. And then something drastic changes in the episode and, oh my God, it's this person that actually died, so on and so forth. So just honestly, if you have not watched that show, it is so good. Jennifer Coolidge is a star. Steph, I know that you're a big White Lotus fan. I want to talk about a spoiler for season three, but I feel like we should not necessarily do that because I don't want to be, I don't want to create a disservice for our, our listeners, but let's just put it this way. Season three is going to be pretty, pretty dope. Am I right? Season two is going to be hard to top, but I'm very confident in Mike White's abilities. You know, if anyone is having any hesitation on watching The White Lotus, I'm going to give you the real reason why. Mike White actually also wrote the classic, the legendary School of Rock. There you go. So if Wait, that doesn't so we make did you White Lotus. watch it. School of Rock, and he plays quarterback for the Jets. This guy, Mike White. Okay, on that note, we will probably, probably have one more episode to finish out the year. We are convening for a year-end episode to talk about uh, some of the biggest stories of the year. We'll try to bring on a couple people for that. Should be out some point next week. Before we put this episode in the books, big thank you to Steph and Tony. Guys, anything to add before we put this uh, officially in the books? Just, uh, I think we've got a nice lineup of uh, different stories to close out 2022, and As we usher in 2023, I think uh, it's going to be a really fun ride to see how uh, sports law continues to progress. Oh, yeah. I'm looking forward to everything that's going to happen in 2023. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. Crazy time is flying by. And um, yeah, that's about it. Okay, so we will end here. We have a little bit of business to do before we get out. Uh, We do it each and every week. We head over to the Better Edge segment with Conlon Farrell. Conlon, you keep winning. You keep winning and winning and winning. So Charlie Sheen, baby. Relax, winner, Conlon, Mr. 10, 3, and 1. We have said that the Better Edge guys are very happy that you keep having these winning picks. And in honor of your winning winning ways, we are bringing on Greg Kajuski, one of the co-founders of Better Edge, been on with us before. Greg, welcome back to Conic Detrimental. Thanks for having me. What do you think about Conlon, 10, 3, and 1? You think he's cheating? I think he's cheating. <laughs> I love it. I mean, he's putting his picks out here every week. He's winning. We love to see winners on our platform. So congrats, man. Here's my favorite thing. Like if Colin wasn't winning on the Better Edge platform, right? Better Edge, we talk about it each and every week. Peer-to-peer betting, people are putting out lines, right? They're not always, sometimes like last week, Colin's three and a half pick. You know, I was making fun of him. I'm like, you just gave out the real line. You gave out the minus three and a half. Colin winning winning pick on the Bengals? Yep. Yep. Um, but like most of these lines are like kind of adjusted lines. They're supposed to be in favor of one side or another. Colin, this is, this is how easy it is, right? If you're really smart, you're sharp better. 
Colin, right? Is it, is it like a fighting words if I called you just like a swear better fighting words? It would be fun. It would just be an in, an unintelligent comment from somebody that prides themselves on being the smartest guy in the room as a lawyer. So oh, I would just a shot be, at me. Listen, you take a shot at yourself again. I wouldn't have to do much talking. My record speaks for itself. So all the compliments in the world to you, Conley. You're 10, 3, 1. But on this peer-to-peer betting platform, right, you, you can look out for these custom lines. People can think they're smarter in the field. And I'm sure there are people on the other side, Greg, and we, we spoke about this in a prior podcast, that are setting those lines and luring in, right, the fish, the square betters. Conlon uh, emerges from the scenes. You know, Conlon, we wanted to do right by you. You've been doing so well. Uh, so, you know, Greg is here to bear witness to these picks. And, and now to be a true witness, right, this is a sports law podcast, a witness that we are coming out of these picks ahead of time. Right, because Colin, you're winning at an upseat rate. So, Colin, congrats on the Bengals pick last week. Thank Greg, you. you're going to give us a future as we're getting out. Colin, where do your winning ways take us for this week's pick? We're going to go down to Kansas City. We're going to get the Kansas City Chiefs playing host to Seattle. Kansas City, a really shocker last week. Two touchdown favorites against the Texans and just didn't show up to play. Decided they can walk in and win. We all know that's not how the NFL works. So, let's see. This is my classic Andy Reid Bounce back game. Let me show you. I'm the still the sharpest mind. Like I'm the sharpest mind on this podcast. Andy Reid's going to come out and show he's the sharpest offensive mind still in the NFL today. And he's going to have that Kansas City Chief team poised to make a statement. Look, they still are playing second fiddle to the Buffalo Bills in the AFC at this point in my eyes. They want to come out and be a definitive win at home against the Seattle Seahawks team who's kind of trending in the wrong direction come playoff time right now. They've lost a couple. Pete Carroll, again, they're trying to find answers. Geno Smith was like lightning in a barrel and the uh, dynamite in the barrel, lightning in a barrel, whatever it is. He was hot in the beginning of the season, but now he's kind of uh, played regress to the mean. So let's see here. They, on Better Edge, our, our wonderful partners here, they're giving us the Chiefs at minus 10. That's where I'm going to lock them in. I think the Chiefs win this game by uh, two touchdowns at least. 10, you get you get um, a little bit there. You don't have to hook a 10 and a half. So even if they uh, they the opportunity for a push. But yeah, give me the Kansas City Chiefs at home at Arrowhead, minus 10 against the Seattle Seahawks. Minus 10? Double digits? Double digits. Listen, again, bounce back Andy Reid. He's been eating at local Denny's in Kansas City, Missouri. Pissed off. He's been an angry Andy Reid. And we don't like Andy Reid. What is it this Sunday? It's... Christmas, Andy Reid, Santa Claus. Look at you don't want an angry Santa Claus. Christmas Eve's gonna come. The Kansas City Chiefs are gonna open a can of you know what on Seattle, Pete Carroll, and they're gonna send them packing back to the Pacific Northwest with a two touchdown loss. That's my bold prediction. What what I do like about you, Colin, the more that you've won, the more bold that you've just become in general. Not not bold predictions. You've just, you know. Throwing out Santa Claus. I'm a emphasis. nightmare now at my local bagel shop. I come in there on Monday morning. They are they're like, I hope he lost this week. I'm like, coffee, crumb cake. Now the Bengals covered. Got that well, confidence. Listen, I love it. We we love it. Conlon, you keep it up. And now listen, Greg, what we'd like here, we'd like here. Conlon's pretty good on our weekly picks. We're getting close. We're getting close to the NFL playoffs, which everyone's all excited for. Thought we would uh, spice it up this week and give a special futures pick. So, Greg, you have not given any winning picks thus far. And we're actually not going to know next week if it's a winner or not. Futures pick for the playoff Super Bowl. What do you got? I'm going to go Bills for the Super Bowl. I'm a Vikings fan. It's tough to pass on them. But I think the Bills got some great talent. After last year, the way they lost to Kansas City, I think Josh Allen's going to come back with some grit, really kind of push hard and, and go through the Super Bowl. I know they're a favorite, but I think there's a lot of talent on that team. They'll be able to pull it off and get it done this year. Listen, for someone that is in Minnesota, Better Edge is headquartered in Minnesota. The fact that you are not picking the 11 win Minnesota Vikings, is that what they are? 11 wins? They um, are 10 and that, three, I think. Oh, yeah. 11 and three. 
coming off of these miraculous wins. I think they've won more one possession games than any team in NFL history to this point in the season. It is very telling that a, a resident Minnesotan, is it is it Minnesotan? Is that how to be? It is, yeah. Is not picking the Minnesota Vikings, you're picking an AFC team. I mean, that's kind of blasphemous, Greg. When you're a fan for 20 to 30 years, you learn we always let down in the playoffs at some point. And there's 1998, 2008, all those years where we missed field goals and it gets to you. So you got to you gotta have a second team to go after as well. What I think you were doing, honestly, and I'm, I'm going to accuse you of it right here. No problem doing this. I think this is what we call in the biz, the reverse jigs. I don't think you are picking them because you want Minnesota to, to win. I think that's exactly what you're doing. You have to yes or no? Emotions. Yes or no, Mr. Kajuski? You have to hedge your emotions a little bit. You can't uh, You can't have it all in one spot. Mr. Kajuski, that, that was not a yes or no. That was not an answer to my question. But you're not on the hot seat. And if we were having a real deposition, we'd have some fun. So those are the picks. Those are the picks. We have the Chiefs minus 10. And we have the Buffalo Bills. I'll also tell people right now, too, another we're going to go prop. Get, take the all New York Rookie of the Year ticket with Garrett Wilson and Sauce Gardner right now at the beginning of the season. You could have gotten that for 10 bucks, would have bought you a house. But right now, 10 bucks will buy you maybe a, a Monopoly board game or something like that. But I'm telling you right now, Garrett Wilson is going to finish the year strong. Sauce Gardner's got the defensive rookie of the year locked up in the bag. The mantle's already been dusted in anticipation for the hardware. But I'm telling you, Garrett Wilson right now is still in the mix at plus 125. I'm telling you, parlay those two and have yourself a very merry Jets Christmas because those two guys are going to bring home the hardware. Very bold of you, Colin, to give it out at plus 125. Very, yeah. very bold pick of you. Okay, so that'll do it. Again, uh, if you want to get all these favorable lines that Conlon picks from, use our promo code CONDUCT over at Better Edging, a free $20 upon sign-up. Okay, that'll do it. Again, one of our last episodes of the year. Conlon, good luck to you, sir, going for your 11th win, just like Greg's Minnesota Vikings that he does not want to support, but secretly, off the record, he's telling me they're going to win the Super Bowl. That's 100% what he said. We'll have some fun. So again, it's been a pleasure with you throughout the year of 2022. We'll have one more episode to close out the year, but... That'll do it for us here on Conda Detrimental, and see you next time on one more episode of Honda Detrimental.